If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi, to chapter 3. We finished last week discussing verse 18, but we didn't get all the way through discussing verse 18. So since we have some new people here today, let's just start with verse 18. If there's a little overlap, well, you'll understand why. Verse 18 says, Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. First thing you have to notice is the word then. What time are we talking about? The time when Israel repents and turn back, turns back to God. Because in their time of apostasy, they're calling evil good and good evil. Which sounds a little bit like the world today, doesn't it? That's why it says, then you shall again discern. Meaning you used to discern between good and evil and you stopped. You started deciding it was all the same. Whether we do right or whether we do wrong. And the second thing that we notice is the fact that it tells us how to discern between the one who is righteous and the one who's wicked. Have you noticed throughout our scriptures that God divides things into two parts? In Isaiah, he says, my servants versus my enemies. Here he says, the righteous versus the wicked. And he defines his terms. So here in verse 18, it tells us the righteous is the one who serves God. That word serves is a participle, which means ongoing action. Not a one-time event, but one who serves God. Why? Out of faith and love. Did Messiah say, if you love me, keep my commandments? He said, if you keep my commandments, it's because you love me. And if you don't keep my commandments, it's because you don't. And who judges us come judgment day? He does. And if he tells us ahead of time how his judgment is based, that's kind of like the professor in college kicking the podium saying, hey, this is going to be on the test, so why don't you listen to this one? And I like it when the Lord does that. So the righteous one serves God, the wicked one does not. So in Isaiah 66 terms, his servants are the ones he describes as the righteous, and his enemies are the ones he describes as the wicked. Let's start back in Genesis chapter 18 to see how God keeps making this distinction, hoping that we will make that distinction too. Genesis chapter 18, verses 23 to 25. Somebody who's very familiar with the scripture will say, hey, this is about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're absolutely right. The Lord has told Abraham, I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's problem is, Lot, his brother's son that he's adopted, lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's worried, Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Let's read it, verse 23. Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? See how there's two categories. The same two. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spirit for the 50 righteous that were in it? 
Would God destroy it if there are 50 righteous? He would not. What does that tell you? Are there 50 righteous? No, there's not. Verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as or like the wicked. In Hebrew, the word like and as is the same word. So will you treat the righteous the same way you treat the wicked? Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And then, of course, they bargain down to ten, and then Abraham gives up because there's not even ten. So does God destroy the righteous that are in the city with the wicked because there's not ten? Or does he take the righteous out first? I think of these words every time I hear one of my brother theologians say, there is no rapture. The believers have to go through the tribulation and suffer God's wrath just like everybody else. What does this say here? If God destroys the righteous with the wicked, is that doing right? It would not be. So could God pour out his destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah before Lot and the righteous came out? What did the angels say? We can't do a thing until you get out of here. They literally had to take him by the hand and drag him out almost. Because they said, until you leave, we can't destroy the place. Go to Exodus 23. Exodus chapter 23. Verse 7. What is God's attitude toward the righteous versus the wicked? It's really evident in Exodus 23, verse 7. Scripture says, keep yourself far from a false matter. What's a false matter? Something that's not true. Who's the father of lies? Satan. All layers have their part where? In the lake of fire. So God says, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not justify the wicked. Does God want destruction to fall upon the innocent and righteous? No, he does not. Then would he himself do it? Answer is no, he would not. 1 Kings chapter 8. If I get going too fast, say, whoa, slow down. 1 Kings chapter 8. Starting in verse 31. First Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning who? The wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying whom? The righteous, by giving him according to his righteousness. So whom does God condemn? The wicked. Who does he justify? The righteous. The opposite of righteousness is lawlessness. I heard two more preachers this morning on YouTube talk about lawlessness as stealing from the local store and speeding through school zones, breaking man's law. Is that what God refers to as anomia, lawlessness? No, it's breaking his law. 
So why do they have to define it in terms of breaking the speed limit? Because they teach that the law has been abolished so they don't know what else to do with lawlessness. What should they do with it? Teach it. Teach it. Yeah, okay. Go to the book of Psalms. Psalms talks so much about this topic. Originally, I thought, well, the Psalms, they're just a songbook. Until you start studying and you find, whoa, it's so full of prophecy. But it takes a couple years to study all the way through the Psalms in depth. It's a long study, but boy, it's a deep one. It's a good one. Psalm chapter 7 verse 9 says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. Didn't we see that phrase a lot last night, testing the hearts and minds? So what comes to an end? The wicked. What gets established? The just, the righteous one. Go to Psalm 11. Wayne, how come you're beating this so hard? Because come judgment day, do you want to be the righteous or the wicked when you stand before the Lord in judgment? You decide. Psalm 11, verse 5, but please choose wisely. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So the righteous one, God will test to see why they want to walk uprightly. Is it out of faith and love? Is that why they do it? Then God is pleased. What does it say? Without holiness, no one will see God. But what about the wicked one? His soul hates the wicked one. Psalm 34. Verse 21. Psalm 34, verse 21. Evil shall slay the wicked, meaning they bring it on themselves. If one ends up casting a lake of fire, why did it happen? Because they chose it. That's right. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. What do you think that word trust there means? Has faith in, right? Believes in. Has faith in. Psalm 37, verses 16 and 17. Psalm 37, verses 16 and 17. Throughout the scriptures, people are often bemoaning, why is it that the wicked sometimes get to be so wealthy and the righteous seem to be so poor in physical things in this world? Psalm 37, let's look at verse 16. It says, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. The next word is for, which means because. This explains it. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Meaning come judgment day, the wicked get cast off into the lake of fire. They may have had wealth and power and position in this world for 70 years or 80 years. 
But what is that versus an eternity in the lake of fire? Not worth it. But the Lord upholds the righteous, meaning the Lord will take us home. So let's go together. Psalm 45. Verse 7. You know, I want to start in verse 6 because that's quoted in the book of Hebrews about Messiah. In verse 6 it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In the book of Hebrews, O God there is referring to our Messiah, Yeshua. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. When? Yes, ma'am. Do you have the reference in Hebrews? Of course. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews. There's my lady. She says, show it to me. Turn up to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. There's the two opposites. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. I'm going to make a note here in Hebrews that, that's a reference back to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it's verses 8 and 9. Yep. So if the Lord loves righteousness and hates wickedness and he's going to judge us come the judgment day, which hand do you want to be on? And if righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness, does that explain Matthew 7.23? And I'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. It does, doesn't it? Psalm 75 Psalm 75, verse 10. All the horns referring to the strength, the power, the ability to rule all those things. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. What does the Lord promise in Revelation 1, 6, and 7? That we shall be kings and priests. Does that apply to the wicked or the righteous? righteous. To the righteous. Right. Yes, ma'am. The scripture just above says, sing praises like we mm -hmm. said last night. just above says, sing praises like we talked about last night. Yeah. There were other scriptures I could have covered on that topic last night, but I thought we had gotten a list about yay so long, and probably that's probably enough. Proverbs chapter 10. Verse 
So you have to be careful. If you pick too broad a topic, you start with Genesis 1 and go to Revelation 22, and that takes more than a night. Okay. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. Treasures of wickedness profit what? Nothing, meaning it has no eternal value. But righteousness delivers from death. What kind of death is that talking about? The second death, the lake of fire. That's right. In this world, our human bodies, they fail, we die. But it's talking about eternal judgment. Who will have eternal life? The righteous or the wicked? Righteous. Is there a verse in the scripture that tells us exactly what it takes to have eternal life? Let's go to John 17, verse 3. John 17, verse 3. There's all kinds of verses about will be saved, etc., delivered. But John 17, 3 uses the phrase eternal life, and I like that phrase. It says, and this is eternal life. So that defines what it takes. That they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. Is it okay to know one and not the other? No. Does the Bible give us a test whether you do or don't know God and the Messiah whom he sent? That's 1 John chapter 2. Written by the same author to explain what he meant before. So go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. First John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Sometimes I put those two verses up on Facebook. You know the kind of feedback I tend to get? That's got to be in the Old Testament. That's not in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. John wrote the last books of the New Testament that were written. All the other apostles have been dead for 30 years. And the church is, generally speaking, not under Jewish leadership anymore, but Gentile leadership, and they're starting to go, commandments, weren't those just for the Jews? So John comes back and says, let me put it to you straight. Eternal life is to know him. Let me give you the test right here so that you can do a self-evaluation before you come to Judgment Day. Do you know him or don't you? I, sometimes I get tickled by things that theologians say on YouTube. And I remember once very clearly somebody teaching on these two verses who taught the law has been abolished, but I keep all of God's commandments. <laughs> And I'm thinking, well, I'd like you to explain that, but no, he didn't. He just went on. Okay. Wait. Yes, ma'am. Does that mean that you think a lot of people just think the law is the Ten Commandments, and that's it? A lot of people think the law is just the Ten Commandments except for one of the Ten. <laughs> and they're wrong, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, a lot of people think number four has been changed. Like I said, the First Baptist Church of Prattville, Alabama has a big 
copy of the Ten Commandments on the wall out in the hall outside the sanctuary. And commandment number four is thou shalt go to church on Sunday. So they simply changed God's commandment to the way they wish it would read. You reckon if the Israelites had gone to church on Sunday all those years, they wouldn't have gone into captivity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think not. Okay, Proverbs chapter 10. We're still in Proverbs chapter 10. We're up to verse 7. Woohoo, we went four verses forward. Yes, we are. Or we were in a minute ago. Oh, okay. We were in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2, two and now we're in verse 7. Okay. What she meant is, you don't have us there anymore. <laughs> We've kind of gone forward. Well, I kept a finger there. I should have told you to. Sorry. Proverbs 10, verse 7 says, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Meaning what? The memory of the righteous is forever. The name of the wicked will pass away. Will be forgotten. Proverbs chapter 10, same chapter, verse 16. The labor of the righteous leads to life. The wages of the wicked to sin. And of course, sin leads to death. Now, somebody out there is thinking, boy, that can't be in the New Testament. But it is. Keep a finger here because we'll come back to Proverbs 10. And go to Romans chapter 6. But Wayne, Romans was written by Paul. Yes, it was. Paul told us to quit keeping the law. No, he never did. People think so. Remember Romans chapter 6 verse 1 begins, How sh what should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer in Greek, genoito. In a King James, God forbid. In the New King James, certainly not. You know what they all mean? No. That's what they mean. How should we die to sin, live any longer in it? But verse 16 is the key. Do you not know? What does Paul mean when he says that? What's he calling them? Dummies. Ignorant. I would say ignorant, not dummies. Okay. <laughs> Means the same thing, but once less offensive, maybe. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants to obey, you are that one slave or servant whom you obey, whether a sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Because Paul has clearly understood the lesson that. Salvation by faith leads to obedience. And that leads to righteousness. Back to Proverbs 10. Brother Wayne. Yes, ma'am, Miss Rachel. So a lot of people in verse 14 and 15 you uh, mistranslate or, or misunderstand verses 14 and 15 in Romans 6. Oh, yeah. Yep. Let's turn back to Romans 6. Keep your finger in Proverbs 10 to see what Rachel is referring to. <clears throat> yep, we just had this conversation on uh, Facebook here just a couple days ago. Romans chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, the verses right before. 
Verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. People take that verse and say, we're not under the law means the law doesn't apply. We don't have to keep the law. It's not for us. It's not important. It's not part of our religious life. Not part of our to-do list. But that word under is the Greek word hupo, H-Y-P-O, which means by or through. What's that? Or of. Or of. And what it means is we are not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by grace. It does not mean that the law doesn't apply to us. That's a misunderstanding people have. Um, Is that the only word translated under in the book of Romans? The answer is no. There are other words that are translated under that mean under. This one was just translated to make it look like the same thing. Just like in Matthew chapter 7 where they have the two words fulfilled. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5 where they're from two different Greek words with two different meanings. Okay, thanks Rachel. So back to Proverbs 10. We looked at verse 16. Now let's look at verse 25. When the whirlwind passes by, the whirlwind is described in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 14 to 17. And I see Kathy saying, can we look at that? Yep, as soon as we finish this verse. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more. That whirlwind refers to Messiah's return at Armageddon. What happens to all the wicked? They die. But the righteous has an everlasting foundation. The foundation, what do we build upon? We're standing upon the rock. Okay, for Kathy's sake, even though she didn't ask it, I could see it in her eyes. Go to Isaiah 66, verses 14 to 17 where it uses the very same illustration of the whirlwind to describe Messiah's return. Isaiah 66, verses 14 to 17. I'm going give you a chance to find it. Verse 14 says, When you see this, which is the Lord defending Jerusalem going to happen really soon your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants the hand of the Lord is his protection and his blessing who does he protect and bless his servants in his indignation that's God's wrath being poured out to his enemies behold the Lord will come with fire what is fire picture and prophecy judgment and with his chariots like a whirlwind. There's that whirlwind we just talked about. To render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword. Revelation 19 describes that sword as what? The sword coming out of his mouth is the word of God. The Lord will judge whom? All flesh. Not all Jewish people. All flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Verse 17 defines that a little further. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. Which idol will the people be worshiping in the tribulation period? The image of the beast? Remember from Revelation chapter 13? Yeah. Eating swine's flesh. That's pork. 
That's the bacon, the sausage, the ham sandwich. And the abomination in the mouse, talking about the squirrels, the rabbits, the shrimps, the lobsters, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. So the Lord says, if you're eating those unclean things when I return, I will kill you myself. So for all those people who say, well, in the New Testament, Jesus said we could eat pigs. I say, oh, no, he didn't. And he says right here, if you're doing it, I'm going to kill you. And what do you know about God's prophets? Can they be wrong? Nope. So what's going to happen to those pork eaters when the Lord returns? They're going to say, Lord, Lord. He's going to say, die. And it's over. Back to Proverbs. Chapter 10 for one more verse. Chapter 10, verse 30. We may as well start in 29. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright. The upright are the servants, the righteous, the just. But destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Those are the wicked. The righteous will never be removed. That is, we will stand with the Lord eternally in the new Jerusalem. But the wicked will not inhabit the earth. Where will they inhabit? The lake of fire, and they won't like it much. Now for those who are thinking to themselves, what does he mean? The Lord didn't say we could eat pigs. Sure he did. Go to Acts chapter 10. I'll just give a brief summary of Acts chapter 10. Once you get there. Acts chapter 10 verse 1. Cornelius is not Jewish. Verse 2. But you'd have thought he was if you didn't know any better because he's keeping God's commandments. Some people are still turning. So in Acts chapter 10 verse 2 when it says a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, one who fears God, a God-fearer is one who keeps God's commandments. So he's not Jewish. He's keeping God's commandments, but he's not saved. He's never even heard about Messiah as far as we know. So God sends an angel and says, go down to Joppa, which is by Tel Aviv today. It's where Jonah went fishing. And go find Peter and bring him up here. So Cornelius sends three of his righteous soldiers that keep the commandments of God with him. Are they eating pigs? No, they're not. How many does he send? Three. In verse 12, there's a tallit that comes down from heaven. The prayer shawl is tied at the four corners with representations of the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. And on the tallit, there's some unclean animals. And a voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And does Peter grab a ham sandwich? No, he says, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. It happens how many times? Three times. How many Gentiles are coming? Three. How many times does God say in verse 15, what God has cleansed you must not call common? People assume he's saying, I cleanse the pigs. But that's not what he's saying. Verse 17, Peter doesn't have a clue what the vision means until there's a knock at the door, but knock on your desk. And there's three Gentiles at the door. And if you look in verse 28, Peter says to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any what? Any man common or unclean. 
hold out two hands. Who said the pig is unclean? God. Who said the Gentile is unclean? The rabbis, man. And God's saying, who gets to decide what's clean and unclean? God does. Show me some place in Acts 10 where it says, God has shown me I should not call any pig common or unclean. You won't find it. In verse 34, Peter explains further in case we didn't understand yet. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. That is between Jew and Gentile. If you'd asked Peter yesterday, he'd have said, Oh, there's great partiality between Jews and Gentiles. But now he says, God has shown no partiality. But in every nation, that word nation means the Gentile world, whoever fears him, remember verse 2, Cornelius said, God fear, and works righteousness is accepted by him. Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Then Peter explains the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah and Cornelius and his household get saved. They get baptized and there's the first Gentiles entering into the kingdom of God. Nothing in this chapter says eating pigs is a good idea. Yes, Rachel. Does uh, verse 35 tie into Revelation uh, 14, 12 and that they fear God and keep the testimony of, of Yeshua. Yep. Yep. Revelation 14, 12, that defines who the saints are, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Absolutely, this ties in. Please. Yes, ma'am. Something just came to my mind about the three times, and I thought about, um, about Naomi trying to send the daughter-in-laws back three times and, the, and Ruth refusing, and... Peter, who denied Christ three times, and he later forgave him three times. Something about the three is either contractual or or fully, yep. fully done. Yep. In this case, though, it focuses on how many Gentiles were knocking at the door. Mm-hmm. Three. What if there had been four? How many times would the vision have come to him? Four times. See, but I would say there wouldn't have been four. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. Specific amount for a purpose. Yeah, there are numbers in the Bible that have specific meanings and God never varies. Mm-hmm. Seven is perfection or completion. Forty is the time of testing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. One other chapter we should look at before I get off this topic is Romans 14. Romans 14 is not at all about eating pigs nor worshiping on Sunday. Neither one. It's about a man-made fast where the rabbis require the people to fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, saying Monday's the day that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and Thursday's the day he came down. And the fast they demand is not a total fast like Yom Kippur. You can eat vegetables and drink water, but you can't eat any meat or drink any wine. I grew up in northern Ohio. In the schools, we couldn't have meat on Fridays. We had to have fish on Fridays because the Catholic Church took the Monday, Thursday and put it on Friday. They just changed the day. So in Romans chapter 14, it says in verse 1, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Paul never calls God's commandments doubtful things. It's the man-made rules that are doubtful. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. A lot of theologians jump up and say, aha, he can eat all things. He can eat pigs. He can eat shrimps. No, it means meat and vegetables, whereas the one who's weak eats only vegetables. But what about verse 14? I know and am convinced by the Lord Yeshua that there's nothing unclean of itself. But to whom it considers anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. The translators gotcha. 
The word unclean here is akathartos, and it's not in this verse anywhere. The word here is koinon, which is the word in Acts chapter 10, common or unclean, it's the word common. Common is that which is prohibited by the rabbis. Unclean is that which is prohibited by God. So what verse 14 says is the rabbis have no authority to declare something unclean. That's God's domain. But people read this and think, aha, this says I can eat anything. I can eat roadkill. Well, if you want to, go ahead, but I don't recommend it. Okay. Back to the topic, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon. That tells you where to find it. It's after the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, all written by Solomon, are right there together. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17. I mean, once the prophets, and God tells us the prophets have to be accurate 100% of the time. Once the prophet Isaiah says, if you're eating a pig, when God returns, he's going to kill you. To me, that removes all question of, did Paul tell us we could? No, he did not. It's just misunderstood sometimes. Ecclesiastes 3, for those of you who are my age, remember the song by the birds, to everything there's a time and a season, turn, turn, turn. That comes from Ecclesiastes 3. But that's not why we're here. We're here for verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. Is that true? Do we all have to stand judgment? Yes, we do. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So everything we do will be judged. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. It further explains what he meant in verse 17. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The word matter there is devar, the whole word. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For means because. Here's why. Here's why it's important. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So come judgment day, God's going to judge everything I have ever done. And what did Peter say in 2 Peter chapter 3? That if we keep that in mind, maybe we'll do a little better in this world. How many of you have ever seen a shoplifter? How they look left and they look right. They never look up. They should. Now let's pick up where we should have picked up today in the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 4. Isaiah chapter 11 is about Messiah. And verse 4 is about the judgment that he will bring upon the whole earth. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4. It says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That poor and that meek are the same as in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's in Isaiah chapter 2 and other places. And with the breath of his lips, this is Revelation 19, he shall slay the wicked. So what about righteousness? They get judged, but they inherit the earth. The wicked, they get judged, and they get thrown in the lake of fire. How many people do you think take more than five minutes after being cast in a lake of fire to think they did and made the wrong choice? It won't take them long, will it? Isaiah 26, verse 10. Uh, I have two questions or comments from going to meeting land. Let's see. He says, how does Romans 14, 14 relate to the rabbinic fast being talked about in Romans 14? That's what the whole chapter's about. And Julie says, do you suppose Peter had the vision on Tuesday or Thursday? <laughs> Sorry. The Bible didn't say and I wasn't there. So I honestly don't know. Okay. Isaiah 26. Sometimes I can read between the lines and sometimes I can't and there I just can't. Isaiah 26.10 Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. What Isaiah is trying to say is until the wicked one repents and changes his heart, then there's no hope. That's why God is constantly preaching repentance. Take that heart of stone and circumcise it, which means to cut away the flesh and turn back to God in righteousness. Go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's a hundred years plus after Isaiah. Ezekiel chapter 18. I try to stay away from exact dates because there's so much disagreement on exactly what date things happen, what year. So I just tend to go with generalities. Ezekiel 18, begin in verse 20. Is Ezekiel a prophet of God? Yes. Then can these words be wrong? No. We can be wrong, but they can't. So let's go verses 20 to 24. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. They're just taking a side and think of the Mormon church. How they get baptized for past relatives who've died and their baptism for the relative saves the dead relative who now instead of going to hell ends up going to heaven is that supported by the scripture it is not verse 21 but if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right he shall surely live he shall not die so if one in faith turns from their sins to God, 
Does God still condemn them for their past sins? The answer is no. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, which means lawlessness, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? Answer, that's no. All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. That word unfaithfulness means he has turned away from his faith. He's renounced his faith. I've seen so many people do that. It breaks my heart every time. Ezekiel 33, verse 12. Ezekiel 33. Ah, we may as well start in verse 7. Because verse 12 begins with therefore, and you can't start a verse with therefore and not know what comes before it. So verse 7 says, So you, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, meaning lawlessness. But his blood I'll require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, meaning he does not repent, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So all the watchman is responsible for is calling for repentance, warning of the judgment to come, but he can't make a decision for somebody. Verse 11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Does God want the wicked to die or repent? To repent then how come he never mentions repentance? It's almost 60 times in the New Testament he calls for repentance. Verse 12, Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. Meaning all the good you've done in the past won't save you if you turn away from God to renounce your faith and walk in sin. For as the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turned from his wickedness, nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. That doesn't mean a sin. That means when one turns to walk in lawlessness. When one decides that I will not follow God's commandments, I'll do what I want. Hmm. If that's not sobering enough, let's go back to the book of Malachi. If you're reading from a Hebrew published Bible, there is no chapter 4. But in an English published Bible, a Christian published Bible, there is. So let's go to Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. For behold, what does behold mean? 
What follows is really, really important, right? Let us not miss it. What's so important? For behold, the day is coming. What day? Does that mean tomorrow? No, it means the day of the Lord. Judgment day is coming. The tribulation period is coming. It says burning like an oven. What's fire a picture of? Judgment. So the day of the Lord is coming and it's judgment day. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. How many of you grew up on a farm? When you harvest the wheat, what's left in the field is the stubble. It burns so quick, so easily. And that's what it means, that the judgment of God like a burning fire is going to hit that stubble and just consume it. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. Burn up who? The wicked, the proud. God's saying, why do the wicked do wickedly? Because of their pride. They don't want to humble themselves and be obedient to God. They want to do what they want to do. They which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In times prophecy. The word host means armies. It's the Lord leading the armies in judgment, like in Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. It says that will leave them, the wicked, the proud, neither root nor branch. Talking about total destruction for the proud. Let's go to that could be Nehemiah. Let's try Nehemiah chapter 9. I would say I should have been a doctor, but that might offend some of the doctors. But you were a doctor. My writing is bad enough. That should qualify you. I blame that on Colonel Green, who, before submitting my application to go to law school, said, you're going to have to work on your signature because I can read it. Yeah. Okay. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16. Ah, talking about the relationship between pride and wickedness. But they and our fathers acted proudly, meaning arrogantly, refusing to humble themselves. They hardened their necks. Talking about a horse, you turn the horse by turning his head, its neck turns and it follows its head. They hardened their necks so that they could not be corrected, that they would not leave the wicked path they were on. It says, and they did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. And they were not mindful of your wonders. This blows my mind, it really does. He's saying, think back to Mount Sinai. After God brought Israel with the mixed multitude out of Egypt, he brought them through the Red Sea. He destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. He fed them with manna in the wilderness. He fed them with quail till they couldn't eat it anymore. 
He watered them with water from the rocks. He brought them to Mount Sinai. They saw him come down on the mountain in fire. The mountain quaked. The mountain burned. They heard the voice of God with their own ears. And then they built a golden camp and worshipped it. And God says it was that way the whole 40 years. They saw miracle after miracle. And yet I would tell them to do something. They go, no, we don't want to. When Balaam couldn't curse the children of Israel, he told Balak to do what? Ah, send out some prostitutes out there with some pagan worship and they'll just fall all over themselves to sin. And they did. And then God brought judgment on them. And that's what he's talking about here. They were not mindful of your wonders, the miraculous things you did. They turned away. And Hebrews chapter 3 says it's because they had no faith. Faith doesn't mean I believe there's a God in heaven. They believed there was a God in heaven. Because remember, they said to Moses, we're terrified. Don't let him talk to us anymore. You talk to us. Faith is obedience to what God tells us to do. Go to Matthew chapter, no, not to Matthew chapter 5 yet. Let's go to Psalm chapter 10. I don't want us to fill it back and forth, if I can avoid it. Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. Again, it relates pride to disobedience to wickedness. Psalm chapter 10, verse 4 says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. What did we read in Jeremiah? Just last night we reminded ourselves. God called the people to repent, and the people said, You're wasting your breath. We're not going to do it. We'll do whatever we want, and we don't care what you say. That's pride. That's arrogance. Talking to God that way is like, Lightning rod. Yeah, it's kind of like a lightning rod. Strike me if you dare, Lord. You know what sometimes he does. Okay. And then in Psalm 31, verse 28. Psalm 31. There's not 28 verses, so that must be a 23. Yeah, it is. Verse 23. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints. What are saints? Revelation 14, 12. Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. For the Lord preserves the faithful. That word preserves is netzer. Hmm. And fully repays the proud person. What do you think they get repaid with? Gold and silver? No. Judgment. You betcha. That is Psalm chapter 31, verse 23. If you wrote 28, it's only because I said 28 until I realized there weren't 28 chapters. Oh. Right. No, it didn't work. Psalm 40, verse 4. Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust, meaning puts his faith in the Lord, and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. So don't follow the proud, the arrogant, the false teachers who lead you astray. Rather, put your faith in the Lord. What does the Lord say? 
Or like I like to say in my radio show, what does the Bible say? Because Messiah would oftentimes say, you've heard it said, but I tell you it's written. Meaning not everything you hear is the truth. But if God said it, then it's true. Psalm 94 verse 2. Psalm 94 verse 2. Verse 1 is all about vengeance, so we don't want to read that verse. But verse 2 says, Rise up, O judge of the earth. All judgment is given to whom? To the Son. That's to Messiah. Render punishment to the whom? To the proud. And look at verse 3. O Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? There's some Hebrew parallelism. The proud and the wicked are one and the same. What causes their wickedness? Their pride. They're saying, God can't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want and God will just have to lump it. Come judgment day, there'll be some lumps. And God won't take them. Psalm 101 verse 5. Oh, can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. In time, it seems like there's a verse in the New Testament where Yeshua says, I judge no man, and then all judgment is given to him. Is there a time where we're doing things, but we're not receiving the judgment? Actually, what he's talking about is he, he didn't come the first time to judge. Okay. That's yeah. the second time. And that's, but then you get both, both, both sides of the coin. He's saying, I don't judge you on go and sin no more. I'm not, I'm not condemning you. You have a chance. Right. And as long as there's life in this body, you exactly. have an opportunity to repent. And you're right. He always said, go and sin no more. And that's the grace of God. Yep. I'm still looking for the verse there where he says, go and sin yeah, some more, so and I haven't found it anywhere. Actually, it's in the Revelation. Is it, let him that sins continue. So you can't change at this point. Yeah, there comes yeah, a point that there's... Where he, that's where he kind of says, hey... Guess what? You're sinning. You're not going to change now. Yep. Comes a point that it just, your decision has been made. Yep. So Psalm 101 verse 5 says, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. You cannot approach God in pride and arrogance and find favor in his sight. Mm -hmm. You must humble yourself. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Which are the Beatitudes. That's what I want to look at. The Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, What does that word saying mean? It's a quote. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, talking about mourning over sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, again referring to humbleness, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How many times does Messiah say, if you will not forgive others, you won't be forgiven either? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Notice the word falsely. If it's true, you're in trouble. But if it's falsely for my sake, then you're blessed. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now let's take a moment and turn up to Revelation chapter 16. Again, as I've said a few times lately, the Babylonian captivity is a picture of the tribulation period and things that are coming. And just like those that remained in Jerusalem after the second exile into Babylon, had set their hearts against God and were never going to repent. And God said, I'm going to destroy you each and every one. I want you to see the attitude in the tribulation period in the latter parts of it. We'll just look at Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9. Yes, ma'am? Say that again. Babylonian captivity is a picture of... Of the day of the Lord, of the tribulation period. First... There's three waves of the Babylonian captivity, right? In the first wave, God said, go with them. And those that were ready to repent went. That's a picture of the rapture when God says, come up here. And those that are righteous will go up. Then those in the Babylonian captivity, a few years later, when Babylon comes again, God says, now if you're ready to go, go. And those who are ready to listen to God and go into the captivity went. At Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Messiah says, When you see the abomination of desolation staying in the holy place, then flee to Petra. So those that didn't go to heaven, that have gotten saved and now want to listen to Messiah when he tells them to go, will go. Back in the days of the Babylon captivity, those that didn't go in the first or the second wave are never going to repent. Their hearts are hard, they've made their choice, and God says, I'm going to destroy you all. And those who refuse to go in response to the Lord's command in the middle of the tribulation period, they're the ones that are left at the end to take the great wrath in the bowls. And these are the people in Revelation 16, verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So they know the judgment is coming from God. 
And they say, we have a choice to repent or blaspheme. We choose blaspheme. Verse 10, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. So those who in the Babylonian captivity refused to go in the first two waves of the captivity, they die each and every one. What happens to the wicked in the tribulation period when Messiah returns and they've refused to repent? They die each and every one. So there's prophetic implications. And when we get to Zephaniah, that's going to become obvious. Zephaniah is the book we'll do after Malachi. And it's all about the Babylonian captivity. And in those few chapters, it uses the day of the Lord 18 times. As it clearly relates one to the other. I can't wait to get there, but I will because we've got to finish Malachi first. There are denominations that take this word as annihilation, but this is a being thrown in the lake of fire is still referred to as eternal death. Yep, the second death. Yep. But they are conscious. It's not like they are. It's not like annihilation. Yep, and Isaiah chapter sixty-six says they are going to burn forever and ever, and their worm is not consumed, meaning they cannot die. They will live forever and ever in that fire. How many of you have ever been badly burned? You want to see the scars on my foot? I know what it's like. If you've ever been badly burned, you can't imagine a life in a lake of fire. There's no cold water. There's no ibuprofen. There's no silver salve. There's nothing. And would you believe I've had many people say, Wayne, you can't teach about hell. That'll scare people into getting saved. Isn't that the point? Okay. Psalm 119. If any of you choose to go to hell, God will let you, but you ain't going to like it. Psalm 119. Verse 21. Psalm 119, verse 21. Still talking about the proud. And why pride leads to wickedness. Psalm 119 verse 21. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. They're cursed, why? Because they stray from your commandments. Deuteronomy 8.11. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 8.11. Messiah quotes from Deuteronomy 8 when he's being tempted by the devil. Deuteronomy 8.11. The first quote Messiah makes when he's being tempted by the devil is from verse 3. It says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And verse 11 is talking about that same topic. It says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. You can't forget someone you never knew, right? By not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Okay, back to Psalm 138. The back to is to Psalms. We haven't been to 138 yet. But we will be as soon as you get there. Psalm 138. 
verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, meaning his throne is up in the heavens, yet he regards the lowly. The lowly means the humble. But the proud he knows from afar. Meaning he's not with the proud. They don't have his blessings. They don't have his protection. It's the humble that do. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Verses 16 to 19. What kind of things do the Lord hate? Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. Let me give you a chance to get there. Proverbs 6. It says, these six things the Lord hates. Aren't you glad he's given you a list? Put this on your list of things never to do. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. What's seven? The number of completion? Well, might as well make the list complete. A proud look. Arrogance, haughtiness, a lying tongue. All liars have their part where? The lake of fire. Hands that shed innocent blood. You guys are looking at me like, does that include abortion? Yes. Verse 18 A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift and running to evil. We're supposed to run, but which direction? From, not to. A false witness who speaks lies. That's different from a lying tongue. A lying tongue or lies in general. A false witness is one that goes and testifies in the court falsely so that somebody gets put to death so their land and wealth can be taken. They especially like to do that to widows. Verse 19, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. That is one that causes the brethren to fight internally, to turn on one another. We're not supposed to turn on one another. We're supposed to what? Support and encourage. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Support, encourage, lift up. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 24 and 25. I really like these verses because they give us a time frame. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day? Day of the Lord. As we see the day of the Lord coming, and it's coming very soon, what is the state of the world? Is it getting better and better? The amillennials say the world is getting better and better, and pretty soon it's going to be absolutely sinless and perfect. And we can deliver it to the Lord. And I say, what world are you living in? Not the world I live in. 
you say they're redeeming the world, aren't you? Yeah, that's what they're supposed to be doing. But not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You know what that is in Greek? Episunagogen. Do not depart from the synagogue, as is the manner of some. Keep encouraging and building one another up. Now we have to go back to Proverbs. Mr. Wayne? Yes, ma'am. Do we know why they were departing from the synagogue? Yep, they were being persecuted by those in the synagogue. So they said, we'll just go off and start meeting by ourselves. And the Lord says, no, no, no. They need your support and encouragement. How are they supposed to believe it unless they hear? Didn't Paul write that? Yeah. So Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. It says, Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. When you see that word abomination, you know that's something that God really despises. Does that mean unclean? Not exactly, no. Uncleanness is something that causes an abomination in the Lord's sight. In fact, Leviticus 11 says, you eat unclean things, you make yourselves abominable in his sight. It's, but idolatry is also an abomination. There's other things. Homosexuality is an abomination. Queen. Yes, ma'am. What's a good one-sentence answer for people to ask, like, when you're eating and you just say, oh, I don't have pork? Like, I, I find that, like, coworkers or people that don't know me that well, they kind of have a mocking kind of, like, what do you mean you don't? Well, and then they're like, you're Jewish? And then they I kind of explain, but I... I tiptoe around it, and then they say, well, you can be Christian and still eat all that. Like, what's just one kind of quick way to respond to that? Let me take just one sentence. I would say, have you read in Isaiah 66, 17, where the Lord says when he returns, he's going to kill anyone eating unclean foods? (laughs) Just read that. Just read that. And they say, oh, it's okay. Yeah, I I find it hard to have the conversation all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I see a 66 verse 17. It says very clearly if you're eating unclean foods when the Lord returns, he is going to kill you himself. I'll just say the Old Testament's been abolished, though. Right. Yeah. Right. You can't really get Can a prophet of God be wrong? This is an end times prophecy. But we teach that all of them are wrong because we say it's all cancer. I know. I know. If you say the law's been abolished, you're saying that all of the Old Testament prophets are false prophets. I know. Of course you could say, I simply love the Lord and I would not love the well, if I'm, I'm stuck with one sentence, that's going to be it. If I start going on out there, like, look at me, and these are church-going people who, yeah. like me, heard a whole other story the whole time they grew up. Okay, <laughs> then another approach might be, have you not read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul says, don't touch the unclean thing? 
And God says, if you don't touch the unclean, then he will accept you as a son or a daughter. Would you like to be God's son or daughter? He says, don't touch the unclean thing. Unfortunately, people don't ask me stuff anymore. They just, yeah. <laughs> they've thrown in the towel. The concept of unclean is all the way through Revelation. So, but people are, are taught that that is not of them. They right. So was I. Yeah. Yeah. The word uncleanness appears in almost all those lists of things that are going to keep you out of heaven in the New Testament. Proverbs 21, verse 24. Even the anti-missionaries gave up on me years ago. Proverbs 21, 24. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. Does that sound like a good thing? No. no. Isaiah chapter 2. Verse 12. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. Is it coming on him in a good way, do you think? No. Upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. So the judgments in the day of the Lord that are being poured out on the wicked are being poured out on the prideful. God does not distinguish between the two. He says wickedness, lawlessness, is caused by a lack of humility. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11. Isaiah chapter 13 is not talking about judgment on Israel. It's talking about judgment on the entire world. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, which means lawlessness. So is this talking about judgment on Jews for not following God's law? No, this is judgment on the entire world for not following God's law. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I'll make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, in the day of his fierce anger, which is being poured on what? The entire world for its wickedness, for its lawlessness, for its pride and arrogance. Hmm. Back to Malachi chapter 4. Whoops, I have some questions or comments out here from Go to Meeting Land. Let's see. Why does God say in Leviticus 11, the animals he made are an abomination? He doesn't say they're an abomination. He says eating the ones he called unclean are an abomination. Let's go back to Leviticus 11 and see. Leviticus 11. If you will not obey God's commandments and you eat that which God forbid, then God calls you an abomination. 
How many times have people said, Wayne, God could not possibly care what we eat? And my response is, what, how, how did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden? What did they do? They ate that which God forbid, and it caused the fall of mankind, death to enter the world. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 43, You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled with them, for I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And who quotes this in the New Testament? That you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, you're close, but turn up to Peter's writings. First Peter chapter one. Verses thirteen to fifteen. And the West say, but yet he did not call those things food. That's right, unclean animals he never calls food. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind to be sober-minded, which means in your right mind. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah as obedient children. The grace comes upon whom? The obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter's quoting from Leviticus chapter 11. And before I go back to Malachi, let's go back to Melissa's issue. Go to 2 Corinthians 6. I said, say, have you never read? But, well, let's go read it. I assure you, there aren't many preachers in this world preaching this from the pulpit. Verse 14 begins, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Do you see how they're opposites? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Messiah with Belial? Belial Satan. What part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement is the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Those words were written to Israel. What does Paul say? It applies to you just the same. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because God is going to dwell in your body. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. That word unclean is the same word from Leviticus chapter 11. And I'll receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Where did you see, be holy, for I am holy? Leviticus chapter 11. So Paul says, 
Think about the children of Israel in the wilderness. Three camps to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. Right in the center was the tabernacle of God. Could the people have brought a pig into the camp for supper? No, because God's dwelling amongst them. Well, Paul says, your body is the temple of the living God. He is dwelling there. Do you ask God to dwell in uncleanness? What happens when you eat pork, shrimp, lobsters, etc.? You're putting all that uncleanness into God's temple. How did God react when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a sow pig on his altar? Not well, huh? Not happy. Not happy. What was that reference that you were just reading? That was 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. So most people think it doesn't say anywhere in the New Testament not to touch unclean things. Yeah, it does. And it's Paul who wrote it, and it's to the church at Corinth. And according to 1 Corinthians 12, 2, he says, you know that you were Gentiles. He's not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles and telling them not to touch what is unclean. So Paul has taken these verses that were written to Israel and say they apply just as much to you as it did to them. And also tells them to keep the festivals also tells them to keep the festivals and feasts, yep. Because Messiah said in Matthew 18, no, Matthew 28, verse 18, go and teach the Gentiles all that I have commanded you. And that's why Paul's teaching them what God commanded. This is all kind of like if you were whatever church. Yeah. Well, Isn't Paul kind of like if you were whatever church? Yeah, people teach that he's saying one thing, and when you actually read it, he's saying something else entirely. Like in Colossians chapter 2. Perfect example, Melania. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. I know, I never take an Ibex trail. Never. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Used to remember by saying Gentiles eat pork chops, but then I said, wait a minute, they're not supposed to do that. So, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2. Theologians teach Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, as if Jesus defeated God. Is that what happened? Did Jesus defeat God? No. So, in Colossians 2, you need to start with verse 8. To see the context. What is the context of the discussion? Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you. Cheat you of what? Of your reward. We're going to find out later. Through philosophy and empty deceit. Not the commandments of God. Not the scriptures. According to the tradition of men. That's man based religion. Not God's commandments. According to the basic principles of the world and not according to Messiah. Now go to verse 16 and see the first word is so. Does that start a new topic? No. So back up a verse to 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers. That's Satan and his demonic forces. It's not God. Satan was defeated by Messiah. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, because Messiah triumphed over Satan. 
Let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is a Messiah. People quote verses 16 and 17 and say, See, God said don't do those things. But it's actually just the opposite. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is a Messiah. They teach Messiah and his first and second coming. They're important. So verse 18 continues. He explains it. Let no one cheat you of your reward. That's verse 8. See, it's still the same topic. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Is that God's commandments? No. What did the angels do in the book of Daniel when Daniel fell down on his face before them? What did they say? Get up. Get up. up. Don't let God see this. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Gnosticism. In Greek, the word mind is gnosis. It's Gnosticism. That was what was prevalent in Colossae. That's what the people have been saved out of. And their families and friends are saying, no, 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 you've got to come back. Come back in Gnosticism. We have to earn our godhood. It's where the Mormons get the doctrine that if you go up through their temple and do all their services, you can be a god one day. That's from Gnosticism. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head. The head is Messiah. So don't let them take these things away from you that teach about Messiah. From whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increases from God. Therefore, if you died with Messiah, from the basic principles of the world, go back to verse 8, the basic principles of the world refer to Gnosticism, not to God's commandments. Why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of Men. So Paul's teaching is don't let them take away the things that teach of God to take you back to man-made rules and regulations that have no value. Verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So theologians teach it as Paul saying, don't do these things that God commanded when it's actually, don't let the Gnostics take them away from you and take you back to man-made rules and regulations that never had any benefit for you at all. They just flip it. Yeah, they just flip it. So Mulaney, was that a good example of taking what the Bible says and Making it say something else. So back to Malachi 4 then. Brother Lane, one other example. Okay, Miss Rachel, one other example she says. First Timothy 4, 4 and 5. First Timothy 4. Yeah, let's turn there. You're, you're right, Rachel. That's another good example. First Timothy 4, they teach, says it's okay to eat pigs. Go to First Timothy chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Whoa, I got four comments or questions out there. Let's see. Let's 
he's, Irene says, what is meant by basic principles of the world? That's the Gnostic rules and regulations, their theology and principles. And Rachel wrote, ascetic Gnosticism with the D, it's actually with the T. Ascetic Gnosticism says, if you want to reach Godhood, you must deny yourself all earthly pleasure. So if you like eating a T-bone steak, can't have it. Ice cream, can't have it. God said it's okay, but they say no. You must deny yourself. If you've seen the movie, The Da Vinci Code, you remember the albino that's binding himself with chains and whipping himself till the blood runs down? That's ascetic Gnosticism. You must punish the body. You must suffer in order to... Okay. Okay, I'll get to Matthew chapter 15 in a minute after 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, what Spirit? The Holy Spirit. So let's listen. That in latter times, we're in latter times, some will depart from the faith. You can't depart from the faith unless you were part of the faith. So people are going to turn away from God because they're following false teachers giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Theologians say we're talking about God's commandments. Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, that's not God's commandments. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, meaning they no longer see the difference between sin and righteousness. Forbidding to marry. Do God's commandments forbid us to marry? No, quite the contrary. Commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What is the truth? Psalm 119 verse 142. The Torah. Does the Torah tell us we can eat pigs? No. For every creature of God is good, but it doesn't say every creature of God is food. All of God's creation was good. Even the pig, shrimp, and lobsters, they just weren't food. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for. Every time you hear a preacher preach this, they'll put a period at the end of verse 4. But verse 5 says, For because it is sanctified, that is set apart by the word of God, God bless you, that is God says you can eat it, and prayer, meaning you give God thanks for it. So if God said you can eat it and you thank God for it, don't let the Gnostics tell you you can't have it. This does not say you can eat pigs. Pigs were not sanctified by the word of God. Where in the Bible do you first learn that there are animals that are clean and animals that are unclean? Genesis chapter 7. Turn back to Genesis chapter 7. How many Jews are in the world in Genesis chapter 7? None. And won't be for many, many, many centuries later. Genesis chapter 7. In Genesis chapter 7, man cannot eat any animals. They don't get the right to eat some animals until chapter 9, after the flood. But in verse 2 it says, You shall take with you seven each. It's actually seven pair. The Hebrew reads, Sheva, Sheva, Ishva, Ishto, which means seven mating pairs. Literally says, a man with his wife, we're talking about animals, of every clean animal, a male and his female, and two each or one pair of animals that are unclean. Even before man was able to eat any animals, they were clean or unclean. 
Okay, now Sam says, how about Matthew 15? So let's go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15 is the same as Mark 7. But he says, verses 17 to 19. Before we get to 17 to 19, so we know the context, let's start in verse 1. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Yeshua, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Is the tradition of the elders God's commandments? No, it's the rabbinic rules. It says, For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Where does God command us to wash our hands with a two-handled cup before we eat bread? The answer is nowhere. It's a rabbinic rule. Answer and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profits you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So he has just rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for setting aside the commandments of God. And then Christian theologians say, and then he goes and sets aside the commandments of God. Let's keep reading. Start in verse 17. No, 15. It is chapter 15, verses 17 and 19. So start in 16. We'll split in the middle. So Yeshua said, are you also still without understanding? This is to the disciples. He's saying, are you still so dumb? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated, meaning it goes out in the potty after you're done digesting it? What if there was a little dirt on the bread you ate? It goes out in the potty. It says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So if you eat a ham sandwich, it's not the ham sandwich which defiles. It's the rebellion against God. When you say, God said don't, but I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. That's what defiles it's the rebellion. How many diseases do people get from pork? They carry over a hundred parasites. They carry over a hundred parasites. There's trichinosis. There's all kinds of diseases that people get from eating pigs. And then they say to God, why did you do this to me? And I know God's up there saying, I told you not to eat it. After World War One, America shipped a shipload of pork to France for the poor people that had been in the war. Thousands of people died because the pork spoiled on the way over. Yeah. If you take a pig and squeeze its hoof, there's green, yeah. sick goo filth yeah. that flows out. But that Ugh. keeps the pig healthy. Ugh. But the stuff coming out is Yeah, it keeps the pig healthy. It doesn't keep you healthy. Okay. Back to Malachi. Pickle pigs feed some of the best food in the world. 
Yeah, I don't think so. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Hey, what do you know? We're back in Malachi. Oh, this causes people all kinds of trouble and has caused trouble from the days of the Roman Catholic Church forward. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. You shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. That word son is S-U-N, not S-O-N. The Hebrew word is Shemesh. It really is sun. It's in that big ball of fire in the sky. Why is Messiah called the son of righteousness? Remember the transfiguration. He shines so brightly. He outshines the sun. The sun is the source of the light for our planet. This is saying Messiah is the source of the light for mankind. Let's look at John chapter 1. In What's the Romans, that? Then the Romans went to the sun god and said, Hey, Christmas Day is your birthday. Yep, yep. Constantine, who was a worshiper of the invincible sun, saw that in Malachi and said, Oh, Jesus is the sun god incarnate. And that's why so much sun god worship got brought into the Catholic Church in the 4th century. Yep. So in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's verse 1. Verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him nothing was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the source of the light in our world. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. But people saw that Son of Righteousness and said, Oh, He is the Son God incarnate. No, he is not. He is the one who created the sun. He is the source of the light in our world. He outshines the sun. sun. In Revelation 22, it says there's no need for the sun because Messiah is the light. Let's go look at that. Revelation 22. Verse 5. Revelation 22.5 There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The Lord God gives the light. thought it was Yeshua. Yeshua is God from all eternity. Okay, back to Malachi 4.2. There's more to see there. Because you could read Malachi 4.2 and think Messiah is a bird, and he's not. Malachi 4.2, but you who fear my name, those who believe, those who have faith, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The word wings there is kanafim. It is the corner of the prayer shawl where the zitzit are tied. Did Messiah wear a tallit? Yes. Did he have zitzit? Yes. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9 and read about it. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 20. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. You have to understand, in the days the scripture was written, when a woman had a flow of blood, she dressed in red And everywhere she went, she would have to cry out, Do not touch me, for I am unclean. 
She's been doing this for 12 years. No one's hugged her. No one's touched her. She's not been able to be in public. It says, touch the hem of his garment. And the word hem there is kraspedu in Greek. Greek word 2899. Kraspedu is K-R-A-S-P-E-D-O-U. And it means the zitzit. So, when she grabs the zitzit on Messiah's robe, verse 21. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, his delete in the corner, I shall be made well. But Yeshua turned around and when he saw her said, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Your faith has made you well. Go back to Malachi 4. By touching the zitzit at the hem of his robe, she was saying, you are that Messiah, that son of righteousness that Malachi 4.2 said would arise. And that was the faith she exercised where he says, woman, your faith has made you whole. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Verse 12. Yes, sir. Kraspadon also means corners or wings. Right. And they they thought along the lines of, he is risen with healing in his wings. Right. And that is the Greek equivalent. Yep. You're right. So that's how she gets to that point. Yep. Because it was thought that when Messiah came, he would bring healing. Yep. And it comes from Malachi 4.2. Yep. So we're in Deuteronomy 22, verse 12. Where God says, you shall make tassels. It's not tassels. It's zitzit. That's these strings that are tied at the corner of each of the four corners of the prayer garment. And they represent the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. They're also tied in such a way as to represent four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav which is the name of God. We see them in other places in the scripture, but I've run out of time. So I'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Malachi chapter 4, Verse 3.